Forward Guidance is brought to you by Van Eck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about a Van Eck ETF later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Today, we are going to be talking about a very important issue, and that is the predictive ability of the yield curve to predict recessions. Uh, it has a very, very good track record when the yield curve is inverted, a certain signal in the bond market, a recession follows a number of months later. This is of uh, very important interest because the yield curve inverted in 2022. And so far, the economy has uh, remained in good condition. So many are saying that this indicator no longer applies. We have uh, someone here today who is the best possible person to, to address this topic. And that is Cam Harvey, Professor of Finance at Fuqua School of Business, Duke University. Cam is the founder of the inverted yield curve signal. He discovered it in the 1980s. As Cam, thank you so much for, for joining us. Can you start out by illustrating how you encountered this signal? How did you discover it in, in the 1980s? The story is totally, probably unexpected to your listeners and viewers. So I was a first-year master's student, and I applied for a summer job. And I had two offers. One was at like a major media company, and the other was at the largest copper mining firm in the world. Both were based in Toronto. I'm from Toronto. So the jobs were similar in that they were both corporate development, but I took the job at the copper miner. And I walked in the door and they gave me an assignment for the summer. And that was to predict U.S. real GDP growth. And at the time, as a young person with uh, virtually no experience, I didn't think that was a big deal. Looking back on it, I, if you think about copper mining, like copper is very pro-cyclical. People call the price of copper Dr. Copper because it is so diagnostic of the state of the economy. So for corporate planning, the single most important input for a copper miner is the state of the economy in the future. It determines whether you keep a mine open, close, more research and development. It is the key number, yet they put some kid in charge of coming up with an economic forecast. So that's a setting. Again, I don't think it was a big deal. I looked at the landscape of what the competition was, and there was no way I could match the competition. The competition were three econometrically oriented consulting companies that had dozens of PhD economists, statisticians, econometricians, giant computing power, data that you could only dream about having at that time. And there was just like no way I could compete against that in like eight week uh, internship. So my idea was to do something simple, like really simple. And that is to use asset prices. And we know asset prices reflect the future, not the past. And you think of a stock. So the stock price today is the discounted value of the future cash flows. And those cash flows move with the economy. So if you're going into recession, you expect those cash flows would decrease and the stock price to decrease. So that's kind of where I started looking at stocks. And then I read some research by this person at the University of Chicago, Eugene Fama, and he was looking at the stock market and economic activity. And he found that there was some relationship 
but it was all over the place. So a lot of false signals. So I decided not to look at the stock market, but the bond market. And my intuition was the following. Bonds have a number of advantages over stocks. So number one, with a stock, you've got a dividend, but who knows what that dividend is going to be. And with a bond, you've got a coupon and you know exactly what the coupon is. With the stock, you don't know what the expiration of the stock is. It's not, it's not defined. You hope the company never goes out of business. But with a the bond, there's a maturity, let's say 10 years. And then number three, with the stock, you've got these cash flows you discount back at a risky interest rate. And that risky interest rate could change dynamically through time, leading to false signals. Whereas with the bond, it's relatively risk-free and stable. So I started looking at the bond market and in particular, the bond term structure was careful to look at the literature in the past. And I was actually informed by a very old paper uh, from the Federal Reserve that noticed a cyclical pattern in the yield curve. So yield curve meaning a long-term interest rate minus a short-term rate. This, this old paper didn't draw any predictable conclusions out of it, but I knew I was onto something. And when I looked at the data, uh, it revealed a remarkable pattern that before recessions, the yield curve inverts, which means that the short-term rate goes above the long-term rate. And that's abnormal. So usually the short rate is lower than the long-term rate. And just think of the intuition of going and locking your money in a certificate of deposit. Usually the rates for long-term locking your money are higher than the short-term, let's say three-month or six-month CDs. So I discovered this. I was super excited to present this to senior management. And this is where it kind of gets interesting. I walked into the office one morning, the day of the presentation, and I was hand, handed a box with all the stuff on my desk and oh. was told I was laid off. Oh, man. Yes. Yeah, this is like, I'd never been laid off before, obviously. This is the beginning of my, my career. So I had four weeks to find a new job, which was pretty well impossible. I kept on working on the idea. So like in a way to be laid off turned out, like, well, I worked on the idea. I went back for my second year. I presented the idea to some of the faculty, and they were very excited about this idea. And they said, you need to apply for a PhD. And I did. And I applied and got accepted a number of places, but I wanted to go to the University of Chicago because this person that was working on stock market and real activity, Eugene Fama, that's where he was. Fama became my dissertation chair and, and later quite famous, obviously, with the Nobel Prize. Yes. Well, okay. So you, you had the you know, near impossible job of trying to forecast GDP. Stock prices, there was a little bit of a signal there, but they, they were too complex. Bonds are, are more easy to, to define in, in some ways. So you started looking at the yield curve. So you know, fixed you know, interest rates of you know, the treasury market 
across time. So the three-month bill, the two-year note, you know, a lot of that trades on where the Federal Reserve is going to go and expectations, the 10-year note and the 30-year, and you know, as you alluded to, normally the two-year is, let's say if the two-year is at three, the 10-year the will be at 4% and the 30-year will be at you know 4.5%. When it's inverted and short-term rates are higher, than the longer term, that is quite rare, and that typically precedes a recession. The yield curve uh, is inverted now with the you know, overnight fund rate at 5.5%, the two-year at 4.3%, the 10-year at 3.9%, the 30 uh, and the 30-year slightly above. But you know, we have a downward sloping yield curve now. So what does that indicate, and why has it historically been an ominous sign? Yeah, so to kind of continue uh, the history of this, I got to the University of Chicago and and had a draft of my dissertation. And my committee obviously was skeptical. I showed that this indicator from the 1960s had always worked, but there were only four recessions. And it's reasonable to ask the question, well, is this just lucky? But they were persuaded by a number of things. So number one, the economic theory behind my model was rock solid and not controversial. Number two, I, with this indicator, happened to get the so-called double dip recession of the early 1980s, and none of these professional forecasters got this. So my model was distinguished by identifying a very, very complex sort of economic cycle, like two cycles that happen fairly quickly. And then the third thing that they really liked, I remember another committee member, Merton Miller, really liking this, that I compared my predictions to these econometric consulting services, and they were charging like fifty dollars to $100,000 for a forecast. And I remember Mert saying something like, well, the cost of your forecast is the 25 cents at the time it cost for a Wall Street Journal. And really, that's all you needed. So you just needed to look at the yields. And the measure that I looked at was the 10-year yield minus the three-month treasury bill yield. And, and that was just easily available. And my model was at least as good as these models, if not better, on many dimensions. So, so that's where it started. So they kind of sign off, and then we go out of sample. So after my dissertation's published, what happens? And usually in science, two things happen. So number one, the effect gets weaker. So I was four out of four, so you'd expect, you know, a number of false signals. And then kind of the bad scenario is that, well, maybe it was lucky, and it just goes away, and your model is, is nothing. So in terms of what happened, it went eight out of eight total. So the total number of recessions since the 1960s is eight. It was good in sample, four out of four, and then out of sample, four out of four. So eight out of eight, and this is important, without a false signal. So you can have a model that predicts every quarter there's going to be a recession, and it's going to be eight out of eight also, but it's got a massive uh, false positive rate. Whereas my model is eight out of eight, it doesn't have a false signal. And you're correct. In November of 2022, 
the yield curve inverts. And I go on the record saying, okay, this is like an inversion that qualifies in terms of my model. And it's actually interesting on LinkedIn, January 3rd of 2023, I raised the possibility that this might be a false signal. And I had some credibility in saying my model could be wrong because it's my model. <laughs> uh, I'm not a pundit. Uh, and, and I kind of went through the logic of this uh, as to why it might be a false signal. But I had a, a caveat in that post. And essentially, I was saying that it might be possible to dodge a recession, but this was really contingent upon the Fed standing down. And this is one year ago. So standing down and not hiking rates any further. And that is not what happened. And as a result, I've kind of revised my opinion. I thought we could totally avoid a downturn. But given the circumstances, I think it is likely that we do see much slower growth in 2024. Wow. And yeah, just just to your point about how in sample and, and out of sample, if in 2024, you know, a, a grad student finds a data set going back to 1800 that says 200 out of 200 times this has happened when this has happened, you know, that's great. But it, it's all about what happens after this the paper is published, because, you know, you, you can comb through the library all night to find something that you know, makes it look like like a pattern. And if you don't find the pattern, you, you just keep on going. So that that point that you had out of sample results, uh, yeah, I mean, that eight out of eight is is a, a great track record. And also, I would say recessions are rare. So the fact that you get this rare signal right before something that is also rare, you know, I, I would say that uh, you know that that that, that bodes well. So I mean, wh what is your level of confidence in the yield curve indicator? When was it at its height? I suppose you know you could talk about. 2005 or 2006, when it first inverted, how some of the Federal Reserve were not taking it as, as seriously as, as it was. Obviously, that predicted a huge global massive uh, recession that was probably the biggest slowdown since the Great Depression. And then you go into the world after the Great Financial Crisis, where everyone knew about the yield curve indicator and everyone was paying attention to it. Is that a different world? It is. It's a completely different world. So as you say, in the past, nobody really notice this. And, and, and when you start noticing an indicator like this, it changes your behavior. So this is sometimes called a self-fulfilling prophecy, but let me go through the logic. So imagine in the global financial crisis that the CEO gets in front of the shareholders, the firm has been battered, massive layoffs, they're struggling. And the CEO says, look, this recession caught everybody by surprise. And if, if, if I'd known that this was coming, we wouldn't have taken out a lot of debt to invest in this new plant. But I was blindsided. And, and it's just not me. My peer CEOs and other firms were also blindsided. So don't blame me. So and that's a credible story at the annual general meeting. So now think about like 2024 and suppose that we go into a recession and suppose that a firm gets battered and then a CEO goes in front of the shareholders 
and, and gives the same speech. So, to, oh, well, we were blindsided by, by this recession. It, the, the shareholders would erupt in laughter. So, because this is the most talked about potential recession in history. And, and you think about it, you look at the yield curve indicator, it is eight out of eight with no false signals. And you're going to pull the trigger on a bet the firm sort of project in the face of an inverted yield curve? No way. So, so people see that and it changes their behavior. So they don't make those major investments. And we saw this already in 2023, that investment spending was very soft or negative. And we also saw some of these kind of strategic layoffs. So you go and, and lay off like 5% of the company, or maybe 10%. And all of this is just risk management that you see an inverted yield curve. You, you, you hear the talk of recession and you want your firm to be in a position to be a winner in the recession. So you need to be strong. You don't want to be weak. You don't want to have to sell off stuff that's really valuable to you in the future. So you take certain steps, risk management, and that feeds in to economic growth. So, so think of it, I said, self-fulfilling prophecy. So you see the inverted yield curve, you cut back on your investment, you reduce some of your uh, labor force. All of this actually leads to slower growth. So it, it makes the yield curve causal. So it's actually causing a behavior. So, so that is different. That's one, this, this causality channel is much different than in the past. And indeed, it could come to the point where the indicator just loses its ability to forecast. But, but I don't think that we're there yet. Right now, what I think it's doing, given its excellent record, it's allowing firms to make smarter decisions and, and we don't want a situation like the global financial crisis where you have to slash your, your workforce and unemployment uh, goes up very dramatically. Nobody, nobody wants that. So it's much better to be careful and to manage risk. So it is definitely different. Four Guidance is brought to you by Van Eck. The Van Eck Morningstar Wide Moat ETF, ticker MOAT, has outperformed the S&P 500 for over a decade. How? Moat strives to achieve a simple but challenging task. Buy quality stocks when they're undervalued and sell them when they're overvalued. Visit vanek.com slash moatfg to learn more. That's vanek.com slash moatfg. Now the disclosures. All investing is subject to risk, including the possible loss of money you invest. Visit vanek.com to carefully read a prospectus before investing. The Vanek Morningstar Wide Moat ETF is distributed by Vanek Securities Corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary of Vanek Associates Corporation. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So now the inverted yield curve signal may become causal in actually causing a recession. Does that imply that before for the eight out of eight track record, it was not causal? It was uh, an indicator that a recession might be on the way or will be on the way, but it was not causing it. That, that is correct. And especially recession number eight. Recession number eight was the COVID recession. And it is kind of a difficult one because yield curve inverted and 2019, predicting a recession. I was on record saying it's going to be a recession in 2020, but then COVID hit. 
and we had a recession because of COVID. So it would be crazy to say that the yield curve predicted uh, COVID. We need to think about the counterfactual. So the counterfactual is no COVID. And if you're looking at the time in the fall of 2019, and we do this, this global survey of CFOs at Duke University over the past 25 years, the CFOs were very pessimistic about 2020. So like 70% of them believe that we're going into recession in 2020. So, so the counterfactual, if there was no COVID, the model likely was going to give a, like an accurate signal. Thanks. I just want to say that you're a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and you're also the director of research and partner at, at Research Affiliates and author of the book, DeFi and the Future of Finance. But going back to that, our position, which you know, de- declares official recessions, let's talk about that seventh recession, 2008, you know, extremely well known. Earlier, you said that the theory on which the inverted yield curve rests is solid. Just describe that theory for, for, for our audience today in the context of, of 2007 and 2008, because with the benefit of hindsight, the causes of that insolvency wave is you know, subprime mortgages, CDOs, uh, asset-backed commercial paper. How is all of those f- causes of the 2008 great financial crisis and the global recession, how is that reflected in the, the fact that, the, okay, the two-year was at 5% and the 10-year was at 4% and, and you know, the fact that it inverted in 2005 or 2006, uh, you, tell, you tell us. Like, how does... The causes, I guess, you know, the, the things that caused the recession, how do they also cause the inverted curve? The original idea of my dissertation was that there was information in these asset prices about future growth. And again, the economic foundation is really key, really clear. And, and often in economics, we're thinking of hedging. And in a simple way to think about this, if you think that there's a high risk that there's going to be like a recession or something like that, or some sort of crisis, then people go to the safest asset in the world. And that's the 10-year treasury. You buy it, the price goes up. As the price goes up, the yield goes down. And this often leads to an inversion. So I, I think about the inverted yield curve signal before the global financial crisis as people being very worried Indeed, I remember, and not many people know this story, I was in Davos at the World Economic Forum. This is before the global financial crisis. And I had a talk that I was doing in Davos. And then if you know the World Economic Forum, there's another town called Davos Dorf. And my next session was there. And I realized that there was a common speaker And that was Senator Shelby, who was the chair of the Senate Banking Committee. So I went up to him. I never met him before. I said, I see you're in my session in Davosdorf in an hour. Do you mind if I bum a ride with you? And (laughs) because it was cold and a lot of snow and I was faced with walking over a mile. So he said, fine. So we go down into his secure limousine. And I get 15 minutes one-on-one with the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee. And I say, I'm not sure, Senator Shelby, you realize that the risk in our financial system has dramatically increased. That our banks are 
essentially acting like hedge funds with leverage, like 40 times leverage. That's what a hedge fund might do. Is this something that you're looking at? And I remember him looking at me and saying, well, we don't want any more regulations. And, and I said, well, Senator, I'm not suggesting more regulations. What I am suggesting is that you need to be aware of the risk in our system that's induced by this very high, unprecedented leverage. So I say 40, like a Lehman was like 100, right? So, so this means when you've got this leverage that a fairly small move in the price of an asset could wipe, you, wipe out all your equity and, and potentially more. So, so I do think that at the time, and this is also an inverted yield curve time, that people were figuring out that the risk was very high and, and, and this was reflected in the yield curve. So again, back then, the yield curve is reflecting the expectations, whereas today, the yield curve is actually doing something else. It's got this causal channel. So people buy long duration treasury bonds that are, you know, have no, basically no default risk when they expect a recession, because when there is a recession, the economy slows down and there's a bid for those safe assets. How much of that is due to the fact that when there is a recession, the Federal Reserve typically cuts interest rates? Because you know, let's say we lived in a world where every time there was a recession, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by 500 basis points. Obviously, that would you know, be pretty volatile world. Do you still think that there would be a demand for that safe assets? In other words, is how much of this can be laid at the, 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 the feet of the Federal Reserve? Because you know, I might say the reason we have an inverted curve now is because the Fed raised interest rates so much. The reason the curve inverted in 2019 is because the Fed raised interest rates so much. And then when it uninverts, it's usually because the, the Fed cut. So I just would like to introduce the, the Federal Reserve into this theme. So a number of things here. First, when I'm talking about the long duration asset, I'm not talking about the 30-year. I'm talking about the 10-year, which is the most liquid. And, and sometimes people call this the flight to quality. So anytime you get nervous, there's a flight to quality. And the 10-year is the target. So, so it's very, very important. The Fed's role, in my opinion, and this is maybe a bit controversial, but people think of the Fed as smoothing out the you know, real GDP growth by, by their actions. I think it's actually the opposite. So indeed, I think a lot of damage uh, has been done. Think about this very long period where you've got near zero interest rates. So we're in this very long expansion after the global uh, financial crisis, very long expansion. We've got decent economic growth. We've got record low unemployment. We got the stock market at an all-time high. Yet the Fed thinks that it needs to keep interest rates between zero and 25 basis points. It makes no sense whatsoever. And, 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 and further, it inflicts damage to the economy. So that, that rate of 0% is distortionary. So it's not really reflecting market uh, conditions. So what it allows is for companies that are in distress to survive. 
and it's this so-called zombification where you've got these zombie companies that should be out of business and their valuable resources redeployed. So the people that work for these firms should be redeployed to more productive firms to help economic growth in the longer term. But no, they're stuck at this firm because the rates are so low, they're able to cover their payments on their debt. So this this effect has long-term implications. And then you see the actions of the Fed, which it is just very difficult for me to comprehend that they completely missed the surge in inflation, which was obvious to me. I'm on the record. Go take a look at my LinkedIn. You can see this where I called the surge well before it actually happened. And the Fed was brushing this off as transitory. No, it 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 was a surge in inflation. And they're late to the game. And they start the hike rates and they hike rates at a speed and a, a severity that is historically unprecedented. So the way I look at the seriousness and the, the size or the scope of the hike is you look at what happened in terms of the change in rate and compare that to, let's say, the long-term rate. So the percentage change in the slope of the yield curve, it is unprecedented historically. So they do this and then they overshoot. So 2023, they kept on claiming that, oh, inflation is still really high, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we need to continue when they should have stood down. And a careful read of inflation suggested that inflation was actually within their preferred band, except they were looking at inflation incorrectly. So the surge, the, the, the steepness, the, the, the speed with which the Federal Reserve raised interest rates was very, very fast. And it was very, that would imply what I think that there would be a significant economic slowdown. How was it then in January, were you writing that actually my eight out of eight signal, I, don't, I think it's possible it won't cause a recession. What were those factors that caused you to, to back off from calling for a recession then? Okay, well, first, the, the rate wasn't 5% back in, in January of 23. So the rate had gone to a level that I thought was a level that we should have had for, for many years beforehand. So maybe a little higher than I would have preferred, but close enough. But there were many other factors that suggested the possibility of a soft landing. And, and some of these factors are still viable uh, today. So number one is to look at the difference between kind of job openings and unemployment. So in March of 2022, that gap was, was massive. It was 6 million. So, so that meant that there were many more openings than unemployed people, which meant even if we slowed down, that there were jobs that were available. That gap has shrunk from 6 million to 2 million. But there's still more um, job openings than uh, people seeking those jobs. So again, we're going into the direction of a slowdown, but that is a mitigating factor 
that will soften the blow where you can have an economic slowdown and you don't have a massive spike in unemployment. You can't just look at unemployment. Unemployment is always low before a recession, almost by definition. And it's a, a coincident or uh, maybe lagging indicator of the sort of economic activity. That was number one. Number two, I looked at the housing sector. So in contrast to, let's say, 2006 and 2007, homeowners have much more equity. So, so that meant that even if the housing market like went down, that it wouldn't mean like foreclosures like we saw during the global financial crisis, mass foreclosures. So, so that essentially meant that the consumer balance sheets were in better shape. So, so these are just a couple of the channels that I listed, about six of them, that suggested that it was possible that we could have a soft landing or potentially dodge the whole recession. However, the landscape is different a year later. Yeah, now let's talk about the timing. You, you've got a table which we can put up later. I've seen you present many times showing that the length of time between the first you know, inversion of the of the yield curve and then when the recession starts often is very similar to the length of the recession. That is 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 very interesting. So when the yield curve that matters, you know, a lot of people focus on the ten two spread. I got you talk about the ten year, the three month spread. The the inversion that matters. How long has it been since then? As we record this in the middle of of January 2024, and would that indicate that we are at the median length? Are we are we long? And what might that indicate about about what's supposed to come? Okay, so a couple of things. So my indicator is 10 year minus three month. Other people look at 10 year minus two years. There's like an infinite number of pieces of the term structure that you could look at. But given my indicator is eight out of eight, there's not a lot of motivation to switch to the 10 minus two. Indeed, the 10 minus two has got a false signal in 1998. So I look at a 10 minus three. So you're right that the yield curve is very useful in, in, in forecasting economic growth, inverted yield curves precede, in fact, recessions. And you know some people criticize it saying, well, but it's inconsistent. We don't know exactly what the lead is. And I said, well, come on, it's only one variable. Yeah. Our economy is so complex and we're just using this single thing, the difference between the yield on a 10-year and a three-month treasury bill, you're asking too much. So, so the lead time is variable. And over the last four recessions, most recent ones, the lead time is on average 13 months. And we are at, we're in the 14th month. So we're essentially at the average. So for somebody to say, oh, well, this yield curve indicator is a false signal this time. Well, you look, at, look at the data. We're at the average. It's way too early to say it's a false signal. Oh, just by the way, I hope it's a false signal. I know it's my model, but nobody wants a recession. So, but it's just too early. And the other thing that's fascinating to look at, and, and people often make this mistake, said, well, oh, the yield curve is flattening out. It's uninverting. So therefore, you're, you missed the recession. But again, go look at the data. 
look at the last four recessions and you actually notice that the yield curve becomes normal. So meaning that the short rate goes below the long rate before the recession actually starts. So this uninversion is exactly what we expect. As your tr tr closely tracks sentiment and what people, both institutional investors, but also retail investors are talking about. The, so the 10-2 spread, which is not your indicator, that entered inversion for you know, one or two days in April of 2022. So that's when people started to begin to talk about inversion. But your indicator did not invert until November or, or October, the fall November. of 2022. Yeah. So since then, it has been, I think you said 13, 13 or 14 months. Right. And that is around the average. What, what about the possibility that there actually was a, not a recession, but a, a you know, significant slowdown in economic growth in 2022 as inflation rose, you know, quarter over quarter real growth had two consecutive declines. And I know that's kind of the informal definition of a recession, but you know, you as someone who's on the NBE can say whether that is a, is a recession, but does that kind of slow down count when the price of oil went to $120 and you know, the uh, consumer sentiment went in, went down in, in the tubes and then, you know, real GDP uh, faltered for two quarters in a row. So uh, you're correct that the two negative quarters in a row, that does not qualify as a recession. Uh, the NBER on their website actually goes through the sort of indicators that they look at to date a recession. That definitely didn't qualify. Indeed, and this is kind of interesting, my dissertation is not about GDP growth. It's about consumption growth. Consumption is 70% of GDP. It's the most important component, but that was actually the topic. And it turns out if you can forecast consumption growth, you can forecast GDP growth. So I looked at both of them, but the economic theory has to do with consumption. And actually those two negative quarters had positive consumption growth in each of the quarters. So, so this is definitely not a recession. What I think is more interesting is 20, and that's the most relevant for people watching and, and listening. So 2023 is a year where there might have been a recession. If you look at certain indicators like investment, which is the second most important component of GDP, you see a lot of weakness, a lot of negativity in that. And I think that part of that was companies looking at indicators like the yield curve and saying, this is not the time to invest. Let's wait to see how this plays out. But what saved 2023 was consumer spending. And it was incredibly robust. In the third quarter, 4.9% real GDP growth. And it was driven by consumer spending. And, and where did that money come from? So that money largely came from two sources. Number one, kind of post-pandemic spent-up demand. So the, you weren't out spending during the pandemic and you actually go and spend the stuff that you would have spent during the pandemic. That's number one. And number two, there were a number of extraordinary government programs that provided funds, extra savings for people. And, and, and a lot of that was spent out in 2023. Something that I watch very carefully 
is just the pattern in consumer savings. And it's looking at the data. It suggests that all of this extra money that was in the system due to government programs, that that's pretty well run out in the fourth quarter. Maybe it maintains somewhat in the first quarter, but but we're just this it's really unlikely that we replicate the degree of consumer spending in uh, that we had in 2023 in 2024. And a leading indicator that I like to look at for consumer savings is delinquencies. So auto loans and, and other loans like credit card loans and stuff like that, looking at the delinquencies on that, and that has turned up. And that to me, you think about it, for a credit card, the rates are like could be 18 to 20%. So, so if you've got any savings, you're going to use that rather than having to pay that punitive interest rate. But when that starts going up, that's indicative of people essentially running out of savings. So, so I think that we're just not going to get the sort of strength we've got at the end of the month. We'll have the fourth quarter GDP, the initial number, which will mainly reflect October and November. But I expect the GDP growth to come in around 2.5%, so about half of what we saw. And and 2.5% is not bad, I guess, but the first quarter and second quarter of 24, those are going to be the key. That That's really going to determine what what's going to happen in terms of whether we're going to have a soft landing or just a regular recession. And to be clear, I define a soft landing as as below average uh, economic growth, potentially a technical recession. So like a mild recession like we had in, I don't know, like 2001, where year over year, you don't even have negative growth. But But that would be the soft landing scenario. And then the hard landing, nobody wants. I'm hopeful that we avoid the hard landing. Where would that put us in the length of time in between the inversion of the yield curve in 2022 and when the NBER d- declares yeah. a recession? What What is the longest length on record? And you know, what do you think the odds are that we beat that? Uh, okay, so if if a recession started in the first quarter, we, it, it, no, if it started in, in the first quarter, we'd be exactly on average. Mm-hmm. If it started in the second quarter, then a little beyond the average. But the the longest one is 22 months. It's almost two years. It takes a while to work through all of this into the system. And there's so many things that are happening that are headwinds. Think of, you know, just a simple thing, like the student loan repayments having to restart in October. So of 2023, that affects, you know, millions of Americans. And that is a headwind. Think about another channel that's kind of interesting uh, to me. And this is indeed in my opinion, a red flag. Our banking system was stressed in March of 2023. And then it seemed like, oh, it's just a couple of uh, bad apples. I don't think so. There's many banks that look like SVB and, and others. And, and it is weird to me. And I actually challenge your listeners and viewers to go out and ask their banker what rate of interest they're getting on their savings deposit. I did that. 
and discovered that my too big to fail bank was paying two basis points. So two basis points when rates in a money market fund are well over 500. So why is that? So I started to look at banks in general, and I found that if you look across all banks in the US, the rate on average is about 70 basis points, still less than 1%. And then I looked at the too big to fail banks and noticed they're all in around my bank, which is two basis points. The most generous too big to fail was Citibank with five basis points. Okay, so so what happens? Well, you realize that you're getting a terrible rate and you pull your savings and put it into a money market mutual fund and collect more than 5%. So that takes deposits out of the system and we've seen a very significant flight. Kind of makes sense to them. So it's way more profitable for them to lose half their deposits and continue to pay two basis points than to keep their deposits and pay 500 basis points. So it's clear what they're doing. They don't care. But when those deposits go, it creates a future credit squeeze. There's not as much to lend out. When there's not as much to lend out, that that means that many good projects are not going to be financed. And this feeds into lower economic growth. But we don't see it immediately. It's with a lag. So 2024, some of this stuff will come into play. What would be a sufficiently low level of interest rate on the Fed funds rate for your concerns about the U.S. economy to be somewhat allayed? You know, five and three eighths where we are now, that's too high, you know, likely or you know, poised to, to cause recession. But the market is pricing in that the Fed will you know, decline interest rates to less than 4% by the end of the year. Of course, I am describing that individual yield curve, which yeah. you know I know is bearish sure. on, on your model. Sure. But at, at what point does do you think the you know uh, if the Federal Reserve res- returns to a neutral rate, the economy can you know be continue to be resilient? If if I was running the Federal Reserve, and what I'm going to say is probably the reason why I'm not, <laughs> the rate should be slashed immediately. And I think 3.5 percent is is about neutral right now. They've made a fundamental mistake in in this inflation sort of diagnosis that the reason that we've got inflation at 3.2% is an artifact of how they treat housing inflation, the so-called shelter inflation, which is the largest component of inflation, 35% of the entire weight uh, of stuff that goes into the CPI is shelter. And that is running at a rate of 6.2%, which makes no sense whatsoever. So just a casual examination of housing prices or of rents. Actually, rents are running negative year over year. And the reason that this number is 6.2 in the the Bureau of Labor Statistics calculation is because shelter is smoothed. So that 6.2 is reflecting what happened last year, not today. And if you put a more reasonable estimate of shelter inflation that's reflecting today's shelter inflation into the CPI, the CPI is 1.8% year over year. And that more reasonable estimate is 2%. 
And actually, I think it's not 2%. It's more like 1% or zero. And again, so I'm being very conservative in saying inflation is running at 1.8. And it has been for quite a while. So this is why it was a mistake for the Fed to continue to hike in 2023. This is purely an artifact of the data. And in my opinion, policy should be based upon real-time data or expectations, not stuff that happened a year ago. So this is very, very damaging. So the next inflation print that we'll get in February, inflation will drop dramatically. So I'd forecast it'll go to 2.5%. And again, it's kind of obvious why. The number that's going to drop off in the year over year is a negative 0.8%. I do worry about the distortionary effect of having the short rate so high for so long. It's also very costly for the Fed. So they're making like record losses. So think about this. They're paying that rate for all of the excess reserves. And 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 they're definitely in the red on this to the tune of about $180 billion, which is not very helpful right now, given... The other issues, and I will mention another serious issue, and that is that the debt service that the federal government is paying is over $700 billion, and that's based upon an average interest rate of 3%. That rate is going up. It's not rocket science to figure out that you can't get 3%. So all of the rates are higher. So when the rates go up, and given the sort of deficit spending that's happening, I predict in 2024 that the service costs, so the paying of the interest on the government debt, will be the second largest spending category, ahead of defense, ahead of Medicare. So this is not a good situation where we're borrowing money to pay interest. So that is a, a major structural headwind for the economy. So I can, I can see why that would be bad for the U.S. government if a greater and greater percentage of its deficit is just paying paying interest, paying the debt off, let, let alone spending for what it actually wants to. But could you make a case, or maybe I'll make a case, and you can describe your, your views on it, that both of those phenomena, number one, the Federal Reserve running a deficit or running a loss, basically it's paying its its liabilities it's paying 5.5% or, or you know 5.25 5. 5.5% on and it's earning you know mortgage backed securities that are yielding 2% that it bought in 2020 very if the federal reserve was a privately you know silicon valley bank you know that that would be an issue but the the federal reserve can sort of you know make make money uh, appear from from nowhere and is it that the the loss of the Federal Reserve is the surplus of the banking system. In other words, JP Morgan, who's on the other side of the trade, they're getting 5%. And I guess if the homeowner, you know, they're only paying uh, 3%. Likewise, maybe this case is a little bit harder to make. But uh, if the US uh, fiscal government, if the government is uh, uh, paying so much in uh, interest expense, isn't that just a greater uh, deficit? So a greater uh, private sector surplus, assuming that the federal government you know, keeps its discretionary expenditures constant. Yeah, there's a lot in those remarks. Let me just try to parse a few things. It's kind of interesting. When we look at the debt, we often make adjustments in that debt. So the headline debt is like $34 trillion, and the U.S. GDP is about 
28. But people usually make some adjustments. So, for example, one adjustment would be intergovernment. So the debt that the Social Security Fund holds, that shouldn't be counted. It's like one in one pocket out of the next. And, and that, that reduces the debt. And then you're talking about the, the so-called net debt. The net debt actually includes the, the Fed. So the Fed is not considered part of government. It's kind of outside. And you think of, let's say, all of the, all of the, the money that was accumulated, all the bonds that were accumulated, treasury bonds and mortgages, in the quantitative easing. So, so you don't want to necessarily count that. But in my opinion, you should. And, and the reason is that when you unwind that quantitative easing, you need to have a buyer, right? So, so given the Fed is holding, let's say, a trillion dollars of, of government debt, you say, well, that's just intergovernmental. We shouldn't count that. But then when the Fed unwinds, then somebody buys it, then it is debt. So, it, so you should definitely include that. And then the other is the Social Security Trust should be included that. Almost nobody does. And I think it's a real mistake. So, so why is the Social Security Trust holding the government debt? Well, to pay its obligations in the future. And we know what is going to happen in the future. By 20, 2033, the Social Security Trust runs out of money. And then we have to start issuing more debt to pay for the obligations, the unfunded obligations. So, so the correct way to actually do the debt calculation is to look at the unfunded liabilities, all of these liabilities. So we've got a liability. We've got debt that we've kind of promised a level of service to citizens via Social Security, and that should be counted. And it's better to actually count that money that's in the Social Security gets us closer to what the true debt actually is. So I think that's really important to consider. And, and uh, it is unfortunate that there's not enough discussion about what the size of these liabilities are, but they are massive, massive unfunded liabilities that should be talked about. So again, this is a major headwind. This one can be solved, but it's politically very difficult to tell people that, oh, well, you're not going to get this money when you're 65. We're going to ramp it up to 70. It's very difficult to do that. Though when we instituted this system, the life expectancy was below 65. Very interesting. Professor, thanks so much for coming on. Could you, could you briefly summarize your views about the future, you know, where the yield curve is, is now and what, what you think it indicates? So the yield curve is a model that is very good at predicting recessions, and it also predicts economic growth. So that's very important. The yield curve is suggesting that economic growth in 2024 is going to be below average. I believe that forecast is accurate. I'm hopeful, given all of the other information. So looking beyond the single indicator, and I think it's naive not to consider other information in the economy. Looking at all of the other information, I believe that we've got very good chance at avoiding a deep recession and, and having a so-called soft landing. 
So I believe that the yield curve indicator will be accurate. And I think that there are things in place that mitigate the risk of a deep recession in 2024. Professor, thanks for sharing your insights and thanks everyone for watching. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash motefg to learn more about the Vanek Morningstar Wide Moat ETF, ticker MOAT. Lastly, Forward Guidance is available not just on YouTube, but on all podcast apps. And a video version is available on Spotify and Twitter, where I post interviews regularly. Thanks again. Until next time.